Pastor, it's a joy to see all of you here back in church tonight, and I'm glad that uh, you've made that choice to be where God wants you to be. And I love your theme, choose. And uh, that's something we do every day, isn't it? And we need to make the right choices, and the right choices lead to the right results. And uh, decisions lead to uh, direction, and direction leads to destination. And so every destination that we intend to reach and uh, accomplish for the Lord starts with a decision, uh, a chance to choose. And I'm glad that you have chosen to be in God's house tonight. Let's go to Acts chapter number 17, the book of Acts chapter number 17. And we're going to spend a little time here in this chapter tonight, so hold your spot here. As we start with verse number 10, and I'll read down to verse 12. Acts chapter 17, and starting with verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed, also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. We're going to look at two cultures tonight in this 17th chapter of the book of Acts. These cultures are at a clash with each other. In every culture, you have people who are basing their view on the word, and there are those who have based their view on the world. And so you have a word culture clashing with a world culture. And by the way, those two have nothing in common. They don't blend. They don't mix. John said, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father. It's of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. In Psalm chapter 1, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. So you see this, this clash between a word view and a world view. Now we here in America have experienced what many around the world would call a very abnormal Christianity. In that, our nation was founded on this word view. In other words, our nation started with a view from the word of God. Uh, we have a Christian heritage. Now, a lot of history is being rewritten today. A lot of history today is being destroyed but if you go back and look at our culture as it had its beginning, it was based on God and the Word of God. In God we trust, one nation under God. Let me read something to you. The delegates at the Constitutional Convention were trying to compose the United States Constitution in an attempt to give us a more perfect union. After five weeks of heated discussion, nothing had been accomplished. Our fledging nation had 13 states, which had different monetary systems, different tariffs, and different foreign policies. 
Approximately half of the people lived in three states and the other half lived in the other, uh, the other ten. The leadership in some states wanted slavery, the others did not. And so this group of people was at an impasse. Now the meeting to write a constitution started to break up. And George Mason, a very influential delegate, got up and walked out. George Washington, the president of the convention, followed him out. And Washington caught him as he was about to enter his carriage and convinced him to come back in because Dr. Benjamin Franklin was about to speak. Sick and in his 80s, Ben Franklin rose to speak and he gave the following address. He said, and I quote, in this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find a political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us were engaged in the struggle, observed frequent instances of supernatural providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire might rise without him? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the buildings of Babel. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers, imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings to our deliberations, be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. Now what Benjamin Franklin was telling the convention delegates, with all their intelligence, their purpose, and their sacrifice, was that they had forgotten the most important thing, God. And with that address finished, the Constitutional Convention adjourned for the next three days. Many of the delegates walked across the street, fasted, prayed, and attended church services. When they reconvened three days later, there was a completely different tenor among the delegates, and several weeks later, the most remarkable governmental document in the history of mankind, the Constitution of the United States, was completed. Now today, it would sure seem obvious to me that we again are groping in darkness searching for truth in this country. And I would submit, as Franklin did many years ago, 
that we must return to God and His Word if we are going to find the light to guide our nation as well as our own lives. The neglect of a worldview will automatically result in a worldview. How important is God's Word to you? We've learned thus far in this revival that if God is going to speak to us, we must be silent. We've learned that we must come to a place of submission. But now tonight, we must learn that we have to search the Scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of of God. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Job went so far as to say, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I would dare to guess that most of us have eaten today. If we have decided not to eat physical food up to this point in the day, it probably won't be too many more hours or days until we do. And yet Job said, physical food is not as important to me as the spiritual food I need from God's Word. Is God's Word that important to us? Jeremiah said, thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy words were the, the joy and rejoiced of my heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. The psalmist said, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Now let's look at these two contrasting cultures as they present themselves here in Acts chapter 17. First we see in the world view culture an alarming evolution. God never changes, but the world does. And you don't have to live long these days to realize the world's changing. And it seems like almost weekly we are, we are hit with something more that seems to come out of left field when it comes to change in our nation. The problem with change is that oftentimes it is subtle, oftentimes it seems insignificant or, perhaps, significant, or perhaps it is slow enough that we don't really recognize it as change. We, we get up in the morning and uh, depending on what time we get up, uh, it isn't long until the sun appears. Now, we know that the sun is stationary. We know that the sun doesn't move, but we often say the sun is coming up. In, in reality, the earth is rotating. We understand that. But, you know, you look at that sun throughout the day and don't look directly at it. But you look at that sun, you can't see it move. But by the end of the day, it has gone all the way across the sky from east to west. You look at your watch, and, and uh, it's uh, 6.35. And you could sit here for the rest of the service and watch your watch, but you won't see the hands move. But before I'm done, it'll be 10.30. <laughs> and you'll think, man, it didn't seem that long. And, and change is kind of like that. Oftentimes, we don't see the exact movement of change. We don't always recognize something that is changing, but over time, uh, sometimes shorter time, sometimes longer time, we see this, this change that has taken place. 
Now here in this passage, in this worldview culture, we see an abolished inspiration. Now we read our text, and, and we, we all are, are aware of these people at Berea that are described in verse number 11 as they searched the scriptures daily. But notice as they did, they, they believed, they were following the Lord, but look what happens in verse 13. When the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. They resist the inspiration of God's word. You know, when God's word is preached, it will stir up the people that are against it. I remember years ago, uh, we put up a tent in the city of Detroit, Michigan to hold a revival. And it took us about a week to get that tent up. We were pounding stakes into the pavement to get this 1,500-seat tent up. And, and every day, this little man on a bicycle who smoked a pipe would ride around the tent about five or six times and just kind of stare in at us. And it seemed kind of odd. You could smell the, the rich tobacco uh, uh, of his uh, pipe. And, and it was kind of, you know, very easily noticed whenever he was riding his bicycle in that parking lot around the tent. And finally, after a day or two, we thought, let's, let's talk to this guy. I mean, who is this guy? He kind of looked at us uh, intently, never said anything. And, and so uh, we stopped and we said, hey, uh, are you from around the area? He said, yeah, I live right across the street. And so he seemed pretty interested in this, in this tent blown up. He said, I'm going to burn it down. I'm going to burn it down. Well, he had a pipe, you know, and the tobacco was on fire. And I said, uh, we better have somebody sleep in the tent. They said, uh, yeah, you can do that. And for the rest of that revival, I slept in that tent. Why? Because we hadn't even preached yet, but there was some opposition, you see, to God's word. Do you believe that God's word is true? Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Psalm 119, verse 160, thy word is true from the beginning. Every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 28, And now, O Lord God, thou art God, and thy words be true, which made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever. You know, the oldest trick the devil has is to say, Hath God said? You know, is that really true, what God said? He said you couldn't have all the fruit in all these trees. Is that really what you believe? The devil has always challenged the veracity, the accuracy, the preservation of God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. But we have a promise from God within the Word of God that says God is not a man that he should lie, nor the Son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken? Shall he not make it good? You see, all the promises of God are in him, yea, and in him, amen. In fact, it is impossible, according to Hebrews 6, 18, for God to lie. He's the rock. His work is truth. All his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Now be careful. Because whenever there is this resistance to the word of God, and people begin to, begin to set the word of God aside... There comes an agitated insurrection. Look at verse 13 again. When the Jews of Thessalonica acknowledged that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. An insurrection. 
Then immediately, verse 14, the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, for to come to him with all speed, they departed. You know, when you set aside the word of God, it won't be long till you're mad at everybody. When you set aside God's word and you start doubting the word of God and you start resisting the word of God, uh, nobody's going to be able to please you. Uh, No church is going to please you. No preacher is going to please you. You start rejecting all authority in your life. I think about Stephen a few chapters earlier. Stephen was one of those early seven men that were chosen by the church at Jerusalem to serve uh, the apostles as the church was growing. We would call them deacons today, but Stephen was one of those that was chosen. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen has an opportunity to preach. And basically, he's just telling the stories from the Old Testament. He's just quoting the scripture, telling what God has done in the past. In verse 51, as he looks at his audience... As they hear the word of God, he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And When they heard this, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed upon him with their teeth. And the Bible says in verse 57, then they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and ran upon him, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. An insurrection. You see, when you reject the word of God, you're not going to be at peace with other people around you. Now this insurrection turned into now an accelerated idolatry. Look at verse 16. So now when Paul was, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. You know, the word worship is really defined as worth-ship. It's what the word means. To what are we ascribing worth? We talk about worshiping God. Basically, when we sing, when we give, when we come to church and and enjoy a service, we are ascribing worth to God. We're lifting our voices to Him. In other words, we're saying, God, you are worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our offering. You're worthy of our our service. The word worship means worth-ship. Now, when you reject God... When you take a a view away from the Word of God, you're going to ascribe worth to something. Because all of us have this this need or this desire to give worth to something. And here we find now the whole city given over to idolatry. I wonder what is ahead for us when little by little we put less and less emphasis on the Word of God in our life. We start missing church here and there for other important things. And the word of God and its influence in our life begins to diminish. It's not going to be long until you've got some idol set up and giving it worth. And God said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I am the Lord, that's my name. And my glory do I not give to another, nor my praise to graven images. Is a job, is a person, is a material thing, a hobby, recreation, some form of entertainment, is something of more worth to us than God. Have we set up an idol? Let me ask it this way. How long would it take God to take it away? God says, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. What that means is he loves us so much, he knows the only way we're going to benefit in this life is if he's first. And when God gets competition to our worship, the easiest thing he knows to do is eliminate the competition. And how long would it take God to take away our worship of something other than him? Wouldn't take him a thought. Uh, years ago, I was in a revival, and at the close of the Sunday morning service, people were coming out, shaking hands with the pastor and I, and I remember a man came by, he was a husky man, very well built, very strong looking, probably about 30 years old, looked like he had it all together as it were. Boy, he had a grip of a handshake and he went out and, and the pastor kind of nudged me, he said, remind me to tell you about him. I mean, I need you to pray for him. Well, later on, we, we were going to lunch and he said, let me tell you about that guy. And I said, yeah, tell me about him. He said, really, guess just pray for him. He He's a, he's a great guy, but he's a Sunday morning only guy. He comes every Sunday morning, he and his family, and they're nice people. He said he's, he, he has his own construction company, and they are building buildings like crazy right now. In fact, he's got three crews working 24-7. And I've challenged him, look, you need to pull those crews off on Sunday. God will bless you if you honor the Lord's day. He said, Pastor, you got to make hay when the, rain, when the sun shines. Right now is a good time for me. He said, I, I, I've just got to stay at it. And boy, you know, Pastor said, just pray because they're, they're missing so many things in our church. They never come Sunday night. They never can come Wednesday night. And his family's suffering and he's suffering. And just pray that God would get a hold of his heart. Next morning, I got a phone call at 6 a.m. It was the pastor and he said, can you, can you come with me quickly? I'll pick you up in five minutes. I said, sure. I don't ask questions. And I got in the car, and the pastor seemed quite worried. I said, Pastor, what's up? He said, you know that fellow I told you about last night? He had a massive heart attack this morning. He's in the hospital. I'll never forget as we walked into that room. Here laid that massive man in one of those hospital gowns with tubes and needles and all kinds of IVs going in and out of his body. And I remember we walked in and he couldn't really, he couldn't really move. He just kind of lay in there in that bed awaiting open heart surgery and, and, he, and he looked at his pastor and he, and, he, and he took that little index, his, his index finger that had an IV in it, he, he, he lifted that off the sheet and he, and he tried to point up. 
And, and he said, Pastor, he maketh me to lie down. You know, God can make us lie down. God can take away whatever we ascribe worship to. Whatever we decide to put ahead of God, God can easily eliminate the competition. Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted out, Jesus said. And the sad thing about this idolatry taking place here, and the sad thing about idolatry in our lives today, is we see next an anointed inclination. In verse 17, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him and some said, what will this babbler say? Uh, Others some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Aeropagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Some new thing. You see, it isn't long when God becomes the old thing. When the Bible is talked about as being outdated. When the church that preaches the Bible is no longer, is no longer relevant. That somehow that's old-fashioned. The Bible's an old thing. We need some new thing. Truth, oh, that's an old thing. Why is it that we make the Bible defend itself against every new thing? Why don't we test every new thing with what the Bible says? I'm not a carpenter by trade. I I, I know little about building, but I I did take some shop classes. And over the years, I've tried to build some things. I've tried to build some things in my house. I've given my hand to it. I'm not good at it. But if you're an amateur like me, you've probably done this. Hopefully, if you're a professional, you haven't. But... There have been times where I've needed, say, 20 boards all the same length. Let's say I need to cut some two-by-fours to six feet. And so I, I get that first eight-foot two-by-four. Should, should have just bought a six-footer, right? Okay, but I, I, I get that eight-footer stretched out there, and, and I, I put it up on my, my horse, you know, and I, I get my tape measure out. And I put that thing on the end, I pull it out. And I get to that six-foot mark there, and I take my trusty little pencil, and I, I mark the spot there, and then I get my T-square, and I, I put it on there, and I draw a line, and then I take my power saw, and boom, I cut that thing six feet. Now, that's kind of a process that takes a little time, doesn't it? You know what the temptation for me has been over the years is to take the next one, put it on the horse, and take the board I just cut, and lay it up flush with the new board and draw the line. I mean, it saves the process of the, you know, pulling the tape measure back out, the T-squared, and the pencil, and the whole deal. Now you just put the, 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 the board you just cut and, and make it now your guide. And, and so you, you cut the next one, and then you cut the next one, and you cut the next one. And you know what I found? By the time I get to the 20th one, they're all different sizes. <laughs> they're all different lengths. 
And you know, if we're not careful, we do that with every new thing that comes along. We compare it to another new thing or the last new thing. And pretty soon, the tape measure that we should have been measuring truth by is, is out of date, old-fashioned. And the sad thing is, rather than go back to it, we throw it away. We say, well, it's not accurate. When in reality, the new thing is what was inaccurate. And we need to make sure that we test every new thing with the old thing that cannot fail. Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old, thou hast founded them forever. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The grass withereth, the flower falleth, but the words of our God shall stand forever. And then we see an admired ignorance. In verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. These people had made an altar to the unknown God, and they were kind of proud of it. You know, we, we got something for everybody up here. We got all these new things, but we got one up here, whatever you like. I mean, this one fits all. The unknown God. They were proud of it. Today we find ignorance admired. Illegal activity is admired. Killing policemen is admired. Lying and deception is admired. Same-sex marriages are admired. Children who are totally confused about their gender, that's admired. Turn ahead, hold your spot here, but go to Romans chapter 1. Because God tells us where all this ends up. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21... He says, because that, when they knew God, and by the way, we in America, we know God, and every country knows God. That was the true light, that lighteth every man that cometh into the world, John 1, 7 says, John 1, 8 says. Uh, God has written his law on our hearts, our conscience also bearing witness, Romans chapter 2, verse 15. So everybody knows there's a God. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God. In other words, okay, there's a God, but we're not listening. We're not going to follow him. We're not going to obey him. Yeah, we acknowledge his existence, but, but, but we're not following him. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, 
and receiving in themselves that recompense of their heir which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, bolsters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them to do. Is God spot on or not? I didn't write it, I just recite it. God tells us exactly what's happening in America tonight. We decided we don't want a word-based culture, we want a world-based culture, we want a flesh-based culture, we want to do our thing. Now let's contrast all that in closing to a word view. Go back to Acts 17 and let's look at an authentic example. Those in Berea, back up to verse number 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. We see a discovered priority in verse 11. They received the word. They received the word. Is there a receptivity to God's word in your life? How's the soil of your heart tonight? God describes the soil four different ways. He says we can have soil that's hard. And when the seed falls on that soil, it, it, it lays on top. And quickly the birds come and pluck away the seed, and it brings forth no fruit. Some of the soil is like stony ground, and it's possible for the seed to take root, but it's quickly, uh, it quickly fades, it quickly fails because there's not enough root there, and it withers. Or our ground in our heart can be full of thorns. We can have all these different cares of this world crowding out the Word of God and again choking its effectiveness in our life. Or is the ground of our heart like good ground, receptive, cultivated, anticipating what God wants to speak to us about? The psalmist said, I'll delight myself in thy commandments which I have loved. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and of silver. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Oh, I would challenge you tonight as I challenge myself to cultivate your heart every day for the Word of God. I find that my heart can get pretty hard between Sundays. My heart can get hard between services. We've got to cultivate the soil of our heart, a discovered priority. But then we see a delightful preparation. They receive this Word with all readiness of mind. All of you prepared in some way to come to church tonight. You dressed, perhaps uh, prepared the car by getting some gas. You prepared in some way to be in this place, but oftentimes we come to church or we come to the Word of God and we fail to prepare our mind. Our mind is often on everything but God's message. The Bible says that Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. 
And then we see a daily pursuit. They search the scriptures daily. And it's so important that we're daily in the Word. I was preaching for a pastor some years ago now, Pastor Swanson up in Illinois. Pastor Swanson pastored the same church for nearly 60 years. I think at the time that I had this conversation with him, he had pastored the church for 50-some years, 52 or 3 years. And it was a great church. And we were talking one day about the success of the church, and Dr. Swanson was a very humble man. And he looked at me and he said, Brother Gatch, I realized a long time ago that my people were never going to make it spiritually if all they got was a full meal from me on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. They weren't going to make it. He said, if my church and my people were going to be successful for God, I was going to have to somehow get them into the Bible every day. Wow. And for years, Dr. Swanson would have his people read the week before in their Bible reading every verse he was going to preach on the next week. They would come already prepared with the Word of God speaking to their heart. A daily pursuit. God uses the illustration of the time in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 16, where the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, I'll rain bread from heaven, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them, whether they will walk in my law or no. In other words, the idea was, he's going to say, look, I can meet your needs. I can supply all that you're going to need. But you've got to go out every day and get it. And everything we need for life and godliness is in this book. But we've got to come to it every day to collect the manna. Exhort one another daily while it's called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So do we have a word view or a world view? I was preaching in a Christian school and uh, finished the message and, and uh, we closed and there was a break there, time for the young people to have a little free time, I guess. And as we closed, some of the young people immediately came up on the platform. And some of them wanted me to sign their Bible. Others had a question, and, and they were wanting to ask something. And, and it was fun just standing there kind of talking to these kids. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye, there was a boy who had not come up on the platform. He was about seventh grade. He was, he was, he was, he was down on the main floor. And he seemed to be very perturbed that I was taking all this time with these other kids. He was making noises like, looking at his watch, kind of shrugging his shoulders, you know, and I thought, wow, this kid's going to be interesting to talk to. And finally, these others, they were satisfied with whatever they wanted, and he waited until they were completely off the platform and out of the room, and then he started up those stairs, and I mean he stomped on every one of them, and he came up that stairs like this, and he got up there to me, and he threw up his arms, and he said, problems, 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 problems.
And I thought to myself, what kind of a nut is this? <laughs> and I said, uh, son, are you saved? Well, he took a little offense to that. He said, of course I'm saved. It's okay. I said, uh, do you read the Bible every day? Nah. I said, well, was there ever a time when you read the Bible every day? He said, yeah, about two years ago, I read it every day. I said, well, let me ask you one more, one more question, and then you can go. I said, when did your problem start? And his head hung. And tears began one up his eyes. He said, about two years ago. We don't always see the evolution of those problems. But they'll come when we start developing a worldview instead of a word view. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful for somebody to say of Bible Baptist Church, they were more noble than some of the others I met because they received the word and prepared their heart every day to receive what God had for them. Search the scriptures daily. The word of God. We have to be silent. We have to submit. But we have to search. If revival is ever going to come. Let's bow to pray. Lord, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for your word. Lord, I don't think we understand in America at least how precious it is and how privileged the people we are. I, I know, Lord, in some third world countries where I've been, they have merely pages of the Bible. Some have never held a complete Bible in their hand, in their own language. And we take it so frivolously and treat it so lightly and oftentimes can go days and even weeks and months without opening its pages. And even sometimes those of us that maybe have that habit and discipline of being in church and having a Bible reading schedule, we fail to prepare our heart and cultivate the soil of our heart to receive it and live it. And God, we see our nation tonight drifting we look back in the history records of men who formed this country, who turned to God, who turned to the Bible, who turned to prayer for divine guidance in moments of crisis. And Lord, we're at one of those moments again. And may we at least, in this place, be people who turn back to the Word of God as never before. Help us, I pray. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Let's stand if we can to our feet. And I'm going to have the instrumentalists play. As the music is playing tonight, if God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Maybe spend a moment at the altar. Say, Lord, I haven't been as disciplined in my Bible reading as I should. Or maybe, Lord, I've been reading the Bible and I've been putting in time at church, but my heart hasn't been prepared for it as it ought to be. And Lord, I'm just kind of skimping by. I'm just kind of doing my duty. But the Bible's not really in control of my life. I'm not really being guided by it. I'm guided by the views of those at work or the views of those in Hollywood or the press. 
and I like this guy, and I like to read this one and listen to this one, but I find sometimes the Bible is kind of one of those old things. I'd rather follow a new thing. Oh, tonight, make a determination to get out the tape measure once again. Let it be that plumb line of what we believe to be true. The change is subtle. It's slow. We can't always see every stop it makes between A and B. But all of a sudden we wake up and we see our nation. We see our lives. We see our family in crisis. We wonder how did this happen? We must be people who are willing to search the scriptures. They are our guide, our lamp to our feet, our light to our path. If you're not sure that you're on your way to heaven, the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When this invitation ends in a moment, there are a number of people in this auditorium that would be happy to sit down with you and take the Bible and show you how to be saved. Not, not the Baptist way to heaven, not the church way to heaven, not religion's way to heaven, but what the Bible says. It'd be an honor, it'd be a thrill to be able to show you how you can know for sure that you're saved based on the Bible, the truth of God. Pastor, you come.